You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This evening we come to the beginning of a new series, so I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. We begin in Genesis chapter 1 on the Pew Bibles, it's page 1 of your Bibles. The very first book of the Bible, the very first words of the Bible we will consider this evening. Now, my plan, I don't know fully what they are, but my intention is to work through chapter 3 or maybe chapter 11, but I'm not going to work through the entire book at once. Uh, once we spend some time away after chapter 3 or chapter 11, uh, we'll do something else and maybe, Lord willing, we'll come back and do more in this book. But I don't intend to go all the way through at once. This evening, we come to the beginning, the beginning of it all, to Genesis chapter 1. Let's turn our attention to the reading now of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Here now, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. There are many famous first lines. See if there are any of these that you can recognize. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. You know this? Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen, 1813. How about this one? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Oh, I hear it. Wow, this is interactive tonight. I love this. It was the age of wisdom and the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity, on and on and on. A Tale of Two Cities, right? Dickens, 1859. How about this one? All children, except one, grow up. Peter Pan. Peter Pan, J.M. Barry, 1911. There were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? C.S. Lewis, 1950. Okay, the last one. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. J.K. Rowling. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, 1997. The first line is important. When you pick up a book and read the first line, it is intentionally crafted. It is, for literature, the hook. It draws you in. It sets the stage. It provides a gateway into a new world. And no author treats the first line as a mere throwaway statement. But towering above all of these first lines comes this first line of Holy Scripture, it is the most profound first line that can ever, that is in the universe, that has ever been written. Though its concepts maybe are simple, the wells of thought go deep, going to the heart of even reality itself. Genesis as a whole was written part of the whole first five books of the Bible by Moses. This was written for Israel as they were in the wilderness wandering around and this whole collection comes together. So Genesis as a whole is functioning really as a historical prologue to these covenant documents. 
We'll talk about that more as that as we unfold the book. But Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is really a prologue to the prologue. This is the beginning. This is setting the stage for God's dealing with humanity. And so we come to that prologue of the prologue so that we can know who we are in this section, what the point of the universe is and how God deals with us. So for all of that, we go back to the beginning of all history. Now, as we go through Genesis 1, some might be disappointed because we're not going to spend time on some of the things like the, the days. What does the day mean? What does yom in, in Hebrew mean? The length of the days. Sometimes we can spend so much time on these things that we miss the big picture. What's really going on here? God, declaring God as the creator, God as the artisan, God as the one who has made all things. And to understand this particular passage this morning, we're just looking at chapter 1, verse 1 going to consider the two subjects of the sentence. We're going to consider the creator first and then the creation. Let's consider this creator. In the beginning, God. Consider just preaching on that first. In the beginning, God, but we're going to do the whole verse this time. In the beginning, God. God here is center stage. You notice he's not argued for He's not defended. He's not made into a rational argument. This is not an apologetic for God's existence. When the curtain opens, God is simply standing in the middle of the stage. He's there. He is presumed. He is the necessary cause of all that happens after. The Bible begins by telling us that God is. Without giving us all the philosophical arguments. Now, now philosophical argument, arguments are good and they're fine in their place to talk about these issues. But oftentimes what we're doing when we go into philosophical arguments is we put God into the realm of rationality where I say, I will only believe God if he makes sense to me. If I can understand him with my mind, only then God is there. But that's not what scripture does. It puts God on center stage. It says he is there, whether you like it or not. In the beginning God. Genesis refuses to domesticate God like that. He presents the God who is and the God who created, the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, the God who has all powerful, the God that can do anything that he wills, who is all glorious and needs nothing from his creation. This is the one on center stage, the one whom we adore and worship, for he is worthy of our praise. As this God stands here, he's not inanimate, but God created. In the beginning, God created. He brought all matter and all energy into existence. The fancy theological term you may know for this is he created ex nihilo. He created from nothing, out of nothing, from nothing, there was then something. God's creation is unlike any creation that we can fathom, any creation in our world. When we talk about creating now, we're merely rearranging the materials that God has already given us. Rearranging the ideas he has already given us. God's creation is different. Something qualitatively, radically different from any creation that any human can do. God makes something that previously did not exist. Can you fathom that? Really? Can you imagine what that was like before something existed at all? Only God. 
There's nothing else. And out of this nothing, God makes everything that there is. You can ponder that forever and for eternity. God is making something out of nothing. Our acts as creator is always putting new form to materials that already exist. We cannot fathom this power. We cannot fathom what he has done, what he, how he spoke and it came into existence. And we cannot even comprehend how he is so qualitatively different from us. We cannot fathom God completely because he is holy other. And so that's our first implication here, is that God is independent of his creation. God does not need creation. He is self-existent. And again, the fancy theological term is the aseity of God. The aseity. God is from himself and of himself. God is not dependent upon anything outside of him. God does not need the world. God did not create because he had to do so. God in and of himself was completely complete. Creation is the result of God's good pleasure, not of any need of God that he had in and of himself. So the question is, where does God come from? Where does God come from? He does not. He doesn't come from anywhere because he is. The ground, is, as Louis Burkhoff says, the ground of God's existence is in himself. That's what it means that he is God, that he's not dependent upon anyone or anything, that he always has been, that he is. He needs nothing. For in his triune being, he's eternally joyous and loving in himself. It is an existence that we cannot fathom, for we are only creatures. But the best of the gifts of this life, think of the love that you experience, the joy and the peace, all the good things of this world is a mere reflection, mere sparkle of that perfection of God that he has in and of himself. But he is wholly other from us. He is not like us. And so we have the ideas of the eternity and the infinity of God, right? Because he created at the beginning for us, but there was no beginning for him. He has always been and will forever be. And as some like to say, he himself is even outside of time itself, for he does not change. And time is a measurement of change. God does not change. He's eternal and infinite. Christopher Watkins says this in his book, Biblical Critical Theory, which is very helpful. He says, God is not just a bigger version of us. God is not the smartest, strongest, or otherwise best creature. He is other to all creatures, undercutting any attempt to make God in our own image so as to project onto him our own aspirations. When we think of God, we don't just think, what is the best version of me that could be out there? And that's who God is. God is completely other. We cannot project our own image onto God. He's not a bigger version of us. God is independent of his creation. Another implication here that God created is that there is no rival to God. I think one of the most important features of this whole creation narrative is that there's no conflict anywhere. There's no conflict on any of these pages of Genesis 1 and 2. Creation is not a fight. Meredith Klein says it so well here. Elohim, 
the creator, is portrayed not as a mighty warrior, but as an omnipotent artisan. Not as a cunning conqueror, but as an omniscient architect. There's no sense of the tumult of war in the account. Everything proceeds in orderly and stately fashion according to architectonic plan. And he goes on to say, God does not build with trowel in one hand and sword in the other. There is no need for the sword. It is God. There's no rival to him. God creates the world. He creates it good. This account in Genesis 1 and 2, it's what theologians call a polemic. A polemic is an argument that it's against something else. It's it's an attack. So part of what is going on in Genesis 1 and 2, it's an attack particularly on the the ancient Near East mindset that was found in the days of Israel when they were wandering in the desert against the Egyptian mindset, the Babylonian mindset, and it's attacking the ways they thought about the world. And so as we read these other ancient accounts from Babylon and Egypt of creation, we see so many stark differences. Now, there's many similarities. There's a lot of interesting discussion we can have about that. But the differences are even more important because the differences highlight what God, through Moses, was trying to convey to Israel. And the big polemic here is that all of the other ancient creation narratives had a war between two parties, Creation came about as a war between good and evil or light and dark. But here we have none of that. Here's an example from the Enuma Elish. It's an ancient Babylonian creation account. It dates to hundreds of years before Israel was, uh, had its exodus from Egypt. And just to summarize, there, there was a pantheon of gods in this mindset, this Babylonian understanding. And in the story, the, the gods began with two. Apsun and Tiamat. And these two, through procreation, created all the other gods. So there were a number of gods out there. They all had their, their disputes and their problems and their differences, and there became two factions. There was a cosmic battle that happened between these two factions. One side was represented by Marduk, who is the god, the king of the gods of order. So Marduk, the king of the gods of order. And on the other side, there was Tiamat, the king of the gods of chaos. So Tiamat, remember, was one of the initial gods who created all the other gods. We have Marduk and Tiamat. And these two gods waged war on one another. And ultimately, Marduk won and killed Tiamat, one of the first creators. And Tiamat, all of his remains were used to create the cosmos by Marduk. So the world that we existed in, exists in, according to the ancient Babylonian mindset, is a world of disorder, of the materials of disorder, put together by a god of order. Inherently in creation and in nature is war with itself. The philosophical implications of this are vast and broad. But the point is, this account that we have in Genesis 1 was designed to reprogram the mind of the Israelites who may have heard these stories and to tell the world the truth of Yahweh's kingship and his authority. There's no other rival to him. There's no other God that has anything like he has. There's no one who can challenge him for he is God over all. In the beginning, God created. There's no rival. There's no challenge. It's God who does all things according to his will, according to the purpose of his good pleasure. This one line also, reminds us that we are not the center of the universe. We 
are not a rival to God. And creation was not made for me. It's not, in the beginning, I. It's in the beginning, God. There is a sovereign, supreme God who deserves all honor for who he is and what he has done. And the world goes out and tells us, what's the center of the universe? It's you. But the first four words of the Bible tell you it has a radically different story to reality. God is center stage. He is the creator. Well, there's much more to say, but let's move on to our second consideration this evening. The second subject is the object. The creator creates his creation. So second, let's look at the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first question is, what did God create? And Genesis 1 tells us the heavens and the earth. All the Hebrew scholars will tell you this is a Hebrew literary device called a mirrorism. This is the paradigmatic example of a mirrorism where you name two polar opposites, and by naming those polar opposites, you're naming everything in between. So we say, I looked up and down, high and low. You know my goings and my comings. These types of phrases are representative of everything. So God created everything. There's nothing that God did not create that exists. Heavens and earth, everything in between. You cannot come in contact with anything at any time ever that is not there by God's creative work. Everything you see is from God. Everything you hear, everything you taste and you touch and you know is a result of God's creative working. It emphasizes the first point that the world is about God. It's not about me. It's about the creator. It's not about the creation. There's debate among the scholars whether verse one is a heading of the creation narrative or not. So in other words, some would argue and say verse one is simply a heading and saying it's just summarizing all that's coming after it. In the beginning, God created, created the heavens and the earth. And then after that, it starts at the beginning and tells the whole story. But you notice in verse two, it begins, the earth was without form and void. There's no reason to read verse one as a heading. When we come to verse two, we have an earth that's already in existence. Why would we read this as a heading when it makes complete sense that verse one is telling us God created everything. And then verse two, we pick up with an account of now bringing order to all the material that God has laid out in creation. This is not a header. This is the first act. It is God bringing all the materials into being that are needed to create his masterpiece. And yes, verse two shows it is not yet ordered. And so the six days of creation bring order to these raw materials. As we consider the word heavens, I think we need to peer a little bit beyond what we often think of when we think of the heavens and the earth. We often think it means the heavens above and the earth below. It means the visible skies up there. And maybe we can talk of space and, and the exploration that we're doing even this day. That's included in all the heavens. And yes, that's true, but heavens also has, a, has an additional meaning here. Heavens speaks not just of the physical realm, but of an invisible created realm as well. Heaven here includes the very place where God himself dwells. We read this in Colossians 1 verse 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible. 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So this means that God created not just the physical world, but he created the immaterial world. The world where angels dwell, the world where our souls dwell, as it were. The realm where God resides, even today. It's an astounding thing. But here we also have the creation of heavenly beings, and spirits, and angels. We can confirm this with chapter 2, verse 1. All of these were created by God. God dwells in royal majesty, not because the royal majesty existed previously, but because God created it to glorify himself, a place that is fitting for him to dwell. There's no heaven, even the heaven of God's dwelling, apart from God creating it. What did God create? All things. All things visible and invisible. All things that we can see in this universe physically, but everything immaterial as well. He created it. We come to the next question, though. When did he create? When did he create? The first prepositional phrase helps us with this. In the beginning. Now, this can kind of be a little bit of a confusing phrase, though, because when we use this phrase, typically, it's a relative phrase. Say, in the beginning of the 60s in the beginning of the administration, in the beginning of the school year, in the beginning of something is the way we use this phrase. Not so here. Because here, we don't have a relative beginning. We have an absolute beginning. In the beginning. This was the beginning to begin all beginnings. This was the beginning that started it all the place where time itself began, where material and all creation began. There is an absolute beginning to the world and creation. The world is not infinite. It has not existed for eternity. It is finite. And here we can also trace some implications and we see it is dependent. The world is dependent. The world came into existence by the work of the creator at a point in time. And in fact, creation of time itself was a part of this creation. And so the world and everything there is, is dependent. It cannot exist itself. There's no such thing as the aseity of the created order, much less the aseity of individual created beings. Terry Eagleton says this, the core of the doctrine of creation is not the fact that the world came into existence, but that it did not need to. Let me say that again. The core of the doctrine of creation is not the fact that the world came into into existence, but that it did not need to. The world is not, the philosophers would say, necessary. It is not necessary that God made us, that God created all that there is. And this leads us to a deep humility. You are not necessary. God does not need you. God does not need you for his own personal enjoyment and satisfaction. But nevertheless, he made you. Deep humility, deep admiration and appreciation, deep dependence upon God at the core of our being. Because indeed, every breath is upheld by his power. Nothing can ever happen apart from him sustaining it. There's a consensus among scientists today 
that the universe has a beginning. This hasn't always been uh, the, the position of scientists, but my understanding based on the reading I've done is that scientists do believe that the universe has a beginning. But the problem is scientists cannot, apart from God, cannot account for that beginning. I want to read two quotes for you of, of people trying to make sense of the beginning of the universe. Stephen Hawking, you probably know the name, who died in 2018, a theoretical physicist at Cambridge. Brilliant. Not a believer. He says, because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Let me read that again, because you might have missed the logic here. Because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Now, I'm not a philosopher or scientist, but this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It even says, there's a, because there's a law like gravity, well, now he's presuming something even before creation. But then how can you say the world will create itself? It can and it will. He's saying the world must create itself. The world is necessary, he's saying. It must create itself. How in the world can something create itself? You read another one. Peter Atkins, who's a chemist today at Oxford. Space-time generates its own dust in the, cause, in the process of its own self-assembly. You read that again. Space-time generates its own dust in the process of its own self-assembly. And he calls this the cosmic bootstrap principle. At least he's upfront about it. How illogical these things are. To say the world made itself and is creating dust as it's doing it, the world can just pull itself up by its bootstraps. Something that was not there is actually making itself into being. How do you account for all that is here? How do you account? Now, all the questions of, of, of natural selection and Big Bang and all these, how we get to where we are today, but how do you account for material and matter itself? How do you account for energy in the universe itself? What makes more sense? The cosmic bootstrap principle? That the universe brought itself into being or that a God made everything that exists? What makes more sense? What is even more plausible? Well, before I head down the train of uh, the, the tracks of um, too much philosophy here, as we started off saying we shouldn't go into, let's move to another question. We have the time of creation. Only the Christian worldview can account for it. What is the purpose of his creation? Why did God make all things? And we don't have that fully fleshed out yet. And we're going to see more of that as we walk through the rest of Genesis 1. But we see a sense, especially as we look at, at places in Scripture that are talking about creation, we see a, 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 a brief initial understanding of what God is creating for. We see that God is creating a place for his own residence. Again, Klein calls creation royal construction a king who is making an abode, a place to dwell, a place to display his glory, a place to display his benevolence and his love. Isaiah 66 tells us this in verse one. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. This place was created for God's glory to be displayed, a place for God to dwell. And as we'll see, God made us in his very image and is dwelling with us to commune with us, yet 
only we are creatures. Creatures that he would dwell with. Creatures that he would be pleased to lavish his love upon. It's astounding. But we'll come back to this more in the coming weeks. This is God's world. Creation is God's. It is dependent upon him, yet it is still distinct from him for his own purpose. So as we consider this first line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What stage is being set? If this is providing the groundwork and the direction for all of reality, what is that? Saying reality is about God. All things are about him. History is about him. His redemption is about him. God made all things. Think of some alternate first lines there could be here. In the beginning, man began looking for his happiness. We could go on and on and on, but contrary to culture, your personal preferences are not center stage here. In fact, they're nowhere to be found because creation is about a glorious God. Existence is about him. The direction of the story is not first and foremost about you. It is about him. And Paul summarizes this well in Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are what? All things. From him and through him and to him are all things. And he goes on to say, to him be glory forever. Amen. And our catechism reflects this as well. The first question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are not here for ourselves. We are here for a God who is good and mighty. And yes, we can enjoy him, but he is to be glorified above all. And this helps us understand our relationship to God and to the world. Cornelius Van Til wrote this, in a letter to Carl Henry. It is our business as Christians to begin our interpretation of reality upon the presupposition of the creator-creature distinction as basic to everything else. And that's what we've been speaking of. God is wholly other than us. God is not like us. That, but he made us. We are dependent, but yet distinct from him. Our understanding of reality must begin here. The creature-creator distinction is absolutely basic to the way we understand our world, the way we understand one another, and the way we understand God himself. And our place as creatures remind, renders us in an asymmetrical place to God. We are dependent upon him. He is not dependent upon us. He is the source of life. We are derivative of his all of this obligates us to serve God and to honor him. And though we were created in perfection, we were created the crown of creation. We can no longer do it. We can no longer render pure obedience and praise because we have been infected by the blight of sin. And now we need God himself to rescue us from ourselves. But he has done it. And Jesus Christ, who has come to this earth to bear on his, to bear human flesh, to bear our sin and his body on the tree for us, 
so that we can now come back to Genesis 1-1 as a redeemed people, as a people who know that we have nothing to offer by virtue of creation or by redemption, but we come to the throne of God and glorify his name. And so we come back to honor that creator. But to honor him, we must first look to Jesus and be cleansed and forgiven and made righteous because it's only in Christ that we can affirm Genesis 1-1 and that we can say with Paul, after reflecting on this great creation, to him be glory forever. Amen. Let us look to him in prayer. You are the all-glorious creator, our God how you have made us is astounding. That you have made all that there is from nothing we cannot comprehend. But yet we believe this, we trust you. We pray that you would allow us to render ourselves as sacrifices to you, that we would live our lives to glorify and honor your name. For we are not worthy of even your gift of creation and much less of your gift of redemption. But in Christ, we come to honor and glorify you. Bless us as we do this and may our lives indeed bring you glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.